Hey, Vetfolio Voice family, welcome. We have another equine episode for you. I love bringing you these episodes. They differ a little bit from many of the topics we frequently cover, and I know I learn a ton from them. This talk was sponsored by DECRA and features Dr. Aaron Contino talking about a subject that I will tell you I know absolutely nothing about, and that is equine regenerative medicine. Dr. Contino really broke it down to make all of the information very understandable, very applicable to be immediately taken out and used in practice with equine patients. And there are a few little canine nuggets in there for the small animal listeners. We talked about platelet-rich plasma, IRAB, stem cells, different indications and administration techniques, and one topic that I'm so glad we touched on, I feel like it is important to all of us, and that's kind of the art of practicing medicine, and how sometimes medicine is as much of an art as it is a science. It's always really comforting to hear someone who's so knowledgeable on a subject talk about trusting ourselves and doing what works in our hands. Dr. Erin Cantino is a 2010 graduate of Colorado State University, where she simultaneously earned a master's degree in clinical sciences. After completing a one-year internship at Pioneer Equine Hospital in California, she returned to CSU for a three-year residency in equine sports medicine and rehabilitation, followed by a one-year fellowship in equine musculoskeletal ultrasound. She's currently an associate professor in equine sports medicine at CSU, with a focus on diagnosis and treatment of lameness and poor performance in equine athletes. Her current research focuses include diagnostic analgesia, diagnostic imaging, prevalence of lameness in performance horses, and biologic joint therapies. She's an avid three-day event rider and actively serves in various organizations, including the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation, the American Association of Equine Practitioners, and the United States Eventing Association. All right, let's jump in. Well, I'm joined for this episode by Dr. Erin Contino, and I'm really excited for this episode because truthfully going into this, I feel like I'm going to learn so much. I'm going in very cold on this and and really don't know a lot about equine regenerative medicine. So Dr. Contino, thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited to learn more. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's let's start at the beginning, which is always a good place to start. What what do we mean when we're talking about regenerative medicine? I feel like that could potentially encompass a wide range of options. So when you use the word regenerative medicine, what specifically are you referring to? So that's a great question. And I think if we just stick with the with a strict definition, regenerative medicine is a field of medicine that aims to replace, engineer, or regenerate cells tissues or organs that may be lost or injured due to things like congenital defects, age, or disease. It is pretty wide, as you alluded to in your original question. It really encompasses a lot of things, and we'll talk a lot about sort of biologic products, things that we refer to as orthobiologics. But I think before we delve into that, it's important to sort of clarify the fact that even though it's called regenerative, we can't really regenerate normal cartilage. So that definition is used for things that go well beyond joint disease, right? It would actually encompass things like um, organ transplants. So where you actually can grow an organ for an animal 
or a mammal and then surgically put it in. That is regenerative medicine. But when we look at it more from a joint disease standpoint, the problem is that as we know, joint disease is progressive, it's permanent, it's not curable. We cannot regenerate normal cartilage. And so I think the goal of regenerative medicine is basically to try to restore a joint as best as we can to its original structure and try to restore the biomechanical properties. But we really have to understand that we really can't regenerate damaged cartilage. When we're talking about joint disease, almost talking like restorative medicine, because we're restoring function rather than regenerative medicine, we're actually trying to regenerate the tissue. I think it's a little bit twofold. So certainly our goal in, in most of our treatments is always to restore a joint or an organism to as close to its original function as we can. You can, I think a good example would be if you have a joint that has a defect in it. So if you think about the fact that cartilage is there to try to make a nice, smooth gliding surface, if you will. And if that gets damaged, you no longer have that smooth congruent surface. And so what regenerative medicine can do is we may not be able to get back that exact type of articular cartilage, but you can get a different type of cartilage that will fill that defect. So even though that area where the cartilage defect has filled may not have the exact same mechanical properties as your original articular cartilage, it does at least provide more of a smooth surface. And so if you look at that downstream, then it can help to save that joint from getting maybe the same degree of osteoarthritis as it would if you didn't try to do some sort of intervention to heal that area. Does that make a little bit more sense? I think so. I think so. Now you've got my interest really peaked here because is it almost like, so we can't regenerate normal, healthy cartilage, but we're forming a different type of cartilage. So is this new cartilage that we're forming, is it kind of a lesser function, but better than nothing situation? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it won't have, you know, maybe won't have the ability to do quite as good a job as shock absorbing as your original cartilage, but certainly far better than not having anything there at all. So that's where, again, it's it's a little bit semantics on where we draw the line with what is regenerative. There is tissue there. We are We are providing the joint with something to help it restore some form of tissue. We just have to acknowledge the fact that it's not going to be as perfect as when it was first created or prior to injury or disease. This is so interesting. Like I'm I'm so glad we're having this talk and and I'm excited to dive more into it. Let's talk a little bit about the different products because I understand it's a bit of an alphabet soup so to speak. Can you tell us about the different products that are out there for this cartilage restoration, we'll say, and what the different indications are for them? Yeah, so alphabet soup is a great way to describe it because being veterinarians, I think we love our acronyms and we throw oh, yeah. them around all of the time. So we're going to, we'll hear PRP, IRAP, ACS, ACP, APS, A2M. And so we'll I'll first just start by telling you what those things are, and then maybe we can dive into when we might use one or, or the other. Starting in no particular order, PRP, I think, is one of the more recognized products that would fall into this regenerative medicine category. Its acronym is basically platelet-rich plasma. And I think we're probably all familiar with platelets from the standpoint of what we learned in, in vet school. 
that platelets are really good for repairing wounds, right? They're the first thing to get there when you when you damage a vessel. And they're basically really rich in growth factors. And so we're capitalizing on that. And what platelet-rich plasma is, is just a concentration of plasma. And by concentrating the platelets in the plasma, you're getting a richer source of growth factors. And so those growth factors are going to help the body basically heal injured tissue. The other thing I want to point out about PRP is that it's a little bit apples and oranges in that field because there's so many different variations of PRP. So there are people who think that you're better off concentrating a little bit less. So PRP technically is is anytime that you're concentrating platelets at least twofold, but you can find commercial systems that concentrate platelets, you know, well above that. There's a difference in how many white blood cells are contained in that product. So you'll you'll hear often about leukocyte poor versus leukocyte rich PRP. And there's definitely two camps of people that do some pretty active arguing over which one is better. There's a difference in how many red blood cells may be contained in the product, how many times that you centrifuge the product, and if you activate it. So it does make it difficult to compare PRP from one study to PRP in another study because PRP isn't a super specific term. Yeah, goodness. I was going to say of the alphabet soup, PRP was probably the one I had heard of more often than any of the others, but I did not realize the individual variation. So gosh, it's so much to learn about each individual product in and of itself. Yeah, you're right. I feel like some of these things, you know, we talk about them in a little soundbite, but a lot of these things, people spend their entire career, you know, studying just one of these things and studying one of these things in a certain use, right? Are you using PRP for soft tissue healing? Are you using it in a joint? And that's just within the the orthopedic realm. So really it's, we're just scratching the surface. So it's okay if I'm not an expert on all of this after oh my conversation gosh. <laughs> here. I would, I would certainly not expect it. It's again, I feel like you could dedicate a whole lifetime just on any snippet of any of these things. It's so cool though. I'm so glad that we're diving into it because I mean, even if we're just scratching the surface here, as far as some of the details, just to get some familiarity and understand the degree of complexity that's there is, I mean, it, it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, let's open the door to to becoming a little more familiar with some of the other ones. I think, you know, as you sort of alluded to, PRP is, I would say, most widely recognized in this area. Stem cells are another one. I'm going to I'm going to save that one because we're going to get through our alphabet soup acronyms first. <laughs> so let's go to IRAP, which is a little bit of an older term, and that stands for interleukin-1 receptor antagonist protein. It is more commonly called autologous conditioned serum. And I think that that is a nice name because autologous, of course, tells us that it's coming from the animal, from the, from the self, and that it is a serum that we're basically manipulating. And that is, I would say, the common denominator between all of the things that we're going to talk about is it's typically products that are obtained from the own animal. Sometimes we will get them in an allergenic form, so from a different animal. But most of the time, we're taking the patient's own blood or tissue, and we're manipulating it in some way to get products that are already contained within that blood or within that tissue. So in the case of IRAP or ACS, we are basically concentrating interleukin-1 receptor antagonist protein. And the reason that we do that is that interleukin-1 is one of the major players in joint inflammation. And so I really, the way I describe IRAP to a client is that it's like having, if your cell receptor has a bunch of keyholes in it, 
interleukin-1 fits into the keyhole, it turns the cell on, and it makes the cell produce inflammation. Well, IRAP, which is the antagonist protein to interleukin-1, is the same exact shape and size of the key. So it fits into the keyhole, but it doesn't turn on the cell. And so it basically prevents interleukin-1 from turning the cells on to produce more downstream inflammation. So it is pretty potent anti-inflammatory, but it's not a steroid. And so it has these advantages of being natural and you avoid some of the potential downfalls with corticosteroids by using this concentrated molecule. So that's IRAP and or autologous condition serum. And then another way that we can manipulate blood is autologous conditioned protein, which, you know, it's still autologous. We're getting it from the same animal conditioned, meaning we're doing something to it and we're concentrating proteins. Well, IRAP is a protein too. So there's a lot of overlap between these products. The more common term for this one is autologous protein solution or APS. And again, it's a concentrated serum that has a high level or a higher level of white blood cells compared to IRAP. Now that could be bad. That could be good depending on what you're trying to get out of it. It basically contains, because it has more white blood cells, some pro-inflammatory cytokines, but in the end, it has more anti-inflammatory cytokines than it does pro-inflammatory cytokines. It also has a higher concentration of platelets. So I think the easiest way to think about it is a combination of IRAP and PRP. And then the final acronym that we'll jump into before we maybe regroup and or talk about stem cells is A2M, which is alpha-2 macroglobulin. This is a large protein that's found in blood. It's produced by some other cells as well, but mostly it's produced by the liver. And the advantage that alpha-2 macroglobulin has is that it binds proteases. And the importance of that is that proteases are not good to cartilage extracellular matrix. They basically degrade the matrix. And so by alpha-2 macroglobulin, binding these proteases, it basically lessens the cartilage degradation. It's also been shown to have some anti-inflammatory properties and binds, or maybe even as a reservoir for growth factors. So you're still getting some of the, the same factors that we might be getting through PRP or some of these other products. So basically these things exist in the horse's blood anyway. We are just concentrating them and then delivering them in a more targeted fashion. And I am looking forward to, to diving into stem cells. So I'll hold my next question here for a minute, but, but that was actually kind of where I was headed next is we're giving these back to the horse in a different form. And so how are we administering, um, like, you know, are these intramuscular soft tissue injections? Are we doing joint injections? I am really looking forward to hearing about stem cells. So maybe we should dive into that and then come back to how we're, how we're giving these back. Yeah. So we'll talk about stem cells first, which is probably when you look at going back to that initial definition of regenerative medicine, I would say stem cells are the poster child of regenerative medicine. There's these, these cells that are basically more in an infant stage. And the beauty of that is that they can differentiate into a variety of other cell types. That's part of what they do. They do have anti-inflammatory effects. And interestingly, they've more recently been shown to actually have antimicrobial effects. So some people are using them for infection or septic joints. In, in my world, being in sports medicine, of course, I'm using them to try to restore and repair you know, musculoskeletal tissue. They're 
can be sourced from a lot of things. You'll hear a lot about them being, they can be from amnion, they can be from umbilical cord, whether that be the actual tissue of the umbilical cord or umbilical cord blood. They can come from dental pulp. They can actually be found in peripheral blood. But in equine, I would say the two most common sources of stem cells would be fat and bone marrow. But basically there are stem cells in a lot of a lot of tissues um, in all of us. And our goal is to try to harvest a concentrated source of them. And so that's where bone marrow is a is very commonly utilized is that bone marrow has a reasonably high level of stem cells in them or in it, I should say. I'm just absorbing all of this. And so when you're injecting stem cells, the goal for joint regeneration is we're aiming for them to turn into cartilage, like what we were talking about earlier. That is the goal. And it, in fact, has been shown that with bone marrow derived stem cells, that they do seem to have a superior ability to have what we're going to call chondrogenic potential. So that sort of ability to help restore some form of cartilage. So ones that are derived from bone marrow tend to do that better than at least fat-based. That was in a, a study that just sort of compared that directly. So if I'm using stem cells for a joint, then I do try, if it's possible, to derive that source of stem cells from the bone marrow. And I'm really interested in the antimicrobial effect that you mentioned. I don't know, you know, how much is known about that for septic joints and, you know, different types of infections. I'm sure we've all been between a rock and a hard place trying to treat a difficult infection. Is this something where, you know, you could get a twofold effect if you had an arthritic septic joint, you could kind of go after it from an antimicrobial standpoint and potentially restore some of that cartilage function? Yeah, I think that it does have the the potential to sort of act in a in a multitude of ways. Obviously, in my field of work, fortunately, I don't deal with infection as as much as a lot of other people. I have actually used stem cells for that purpose in a case with a horse that had a nuchal bursitis, which is a really hard area to treat. It's pretty sequestered. It's difficult to get systemic antibiotics to that area. And this particular horse appeared to have this infection that was actually leaching almost to the spinal cord. So there was some pretty intense fear that we could do more harm than good by injecting that area directly. So we actually, in our laboratory have a way to basically stimulate these stem cells to have a little bit more of an antimicrobial effect. So you do something called TLR3 stimulation, and that essentially puts the stem cells in a in a better spot to help fight infection. Now, whether that's what helped the horse or the multitude of other things that I did to try to treat this versus <laughs> bursitis is sort of to be determined, but I do think that it has that potential in joints to where Yes, you could put it in there to help treat infection, but you are also getting some of these other benefits, right? Which is that it's helping set the joint up to restore some of that damaged tissue. I wish it was that easy. I wish it was that straightforward. But the flip side is in the face of a very inflamed joint, stem cells don't tend to be very happy. So a lot of times we will try to decrease the joint inflammation in another way, and then come in after with stem cells for more of that reparative effect. 
I just feel like there's going to be so much more of this going forward, you know, with what you're talking about here, that's, it's fascinating to hear about the the potential to influence these cells to have different effects, depending on what we need for that patient is such a cool topic. Let's go back to, you know, maybe using this horse as an example, when you did go ahead and inject stem cells, how did you administer them? So, but probably wasn't the best case for me to bring up because it's the only horse that I have ever used systemic stem cells. So literally injected just into the vein. It's actually been described in dogs. So when dogs are treated with stem cells for orthopedic conditions, they actually do use them a lot more frequently systemically. But in equine, I would say that we're usually using them as directly as possible. And I would say that's true of all of our treatments, right? If you can isolate a problem down to a specific joint, then usually you're going to get the most bang for your buck if you can treat that as directly as possible. So in the case of joint disease, we would often put the majority of these products that we talked about, we would administer directly into the joint. If you have a soft tissue injury, let's take a bowed tendon, for example, so a tendonitis with maybe a core lesion, then we would take any number of these products and inject them directly into that lesion. So again, the the most sort of direct treatment is usually what I opt for. Stem cells are a little bit different than some of the other orthobiologics in that they have this additional benefit going back to the nuchal bursitis case that you could administer them systemically or oftentimes we'll administer them regionally. So we'll take an artery or a vein that is anatomically very close to the joint or the region of interest and the stem cells will actually hone to that injured area. So we have evidence to suggest that, for example, let's say that your tendon injury had a core lesion and you put stem cells into the core lesion and you come back a month later and that core lesion now has some scaffolding and it's starting to repair, I may not want to go back into that same hole with my biologic product because I would fear that I would stretch that scar tissue out or stretch that scaffolding out and actually cause more harm than good. So that would be a perfect example of when I might do an intra-arterial perfusion and actually administer the cells into a local artery, knowing that those cells will still hone to the damaged area. Truly, they can go into arteries as well as veins? Yes, that's a little bit trickier from an administration (laughs) standpoint. So I think a lot of people in equine medicine are very comfortable doing regional limb perfusions into a vein, right? It's how we treat infection quite a bit that way. If you have an infected joint, you may be treating the joint directly, but you'll often be doing a series of regional limb perfusions. So I think most equine veterinarians use that technique pretty frequently It requires, if you're administering stem cells in that fashion, it requires you putting a tourniquet above the area of interest. So you would, for example, if you're treating a proximal suspensory, you would use the vein that basically crosses the inside of the carpus and you would tourniquet just above that area and leave the tourniquet in place for 30 minutes so that those cells have a chance to migrate out of the vasculature and to the region of interest. I can tell you the horses don't love standing with a tourniquet on for 30 minutes. And a lot of times (laughs) we're all, you know, trying to get on with our day. And we have found that they actually migrate to the region of interest better when they're administered through the artery. So that's something that we do under ultrasound guidance. There's a little bit of a learning curve to it and certainly easier to do in forelimbs, which have a much bigger target. The artery is much bigger and easier to hit in a forelimb than it is in a hind limb, but it is, it is an option. 
This is so cool. I mean, this comes down to like the art of medicine as much as the science, like the science is amazing, but you know, deciding how you're going to administer it. Are you going to go directly into the joint? Are you going to do a vein? Are you going to do an artery? If you're going to do a, a vessel, you know, where do you tourniquet and how's the best way to administer it? It's just, it's so neat. All the different ways that the, that these different products can be used so I'll get, it. I know, like, I feel like my answer to every question is like, this is so cool, but it really is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to give you kind of an actual question here, when you are doing these type of injections, are you ever using these products in combination? Like, does that contribute to kind of the art of it of, okay, well, I'm going to use stem cells, but I'm also going to use this other product. Like, how do you decide what to use? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to answer it in two parts. I think I'll answer the, how do I decide what to use? And then do I use them in combination separately, if that's okay? Because there are so many options, right? I mean, we talked at the beginning about this alphabet soup of options, and it really comes down to practitioner experience and, you know, unfortunately, sometimes anecdotal evidence and, and what our comfort zone is, because we don't have head-to-head studies. I can't tell you or tell an owner, you know, that IRAP outperforms autologous you know, protein solution that outperforms PRP. We, we just don't have those head-to-head studies. And so I think part of it is what you have access to. All of these things require usually some form of centrifugation, a little bit differences in equipment and kits. And so a lot of it just, you'll see certain practices that use one or the other. It's not to say that one is necessarily better than the other. My comfort zone and what I use a lot for intra-articular therapy If I'm looking for an anti-inflammatory product that isn't a steroid, I will be honest and say that my go-to is IRAP. That is just the product that I have had very good success with. There is solid science to back up its use. And so until something else comes along that proves to me that it's superior, then that is my go-to. Other people have, you know, easier access to things like PRP or have had good experience with that. So they may choose to use that. And that's fine. Again, I don't think we can say that that one is right or wrong. But for me, if I'm treating a joint, I tend to treat interarticularly with IRAP. When I'm treating a soft tissue injury, I really, in my mind, I want those that concentration of growth factors. So I will tend to reach for PRP unless my client can afford stem cells. And then to me, they have the advantage, like we've already discussed, of being able to be administered in a variety of ways. And so that would be true for soft tissue or for joint. If stem cells are in the budget, then that often becomes my go-to because I could inject them directly into the joint or directly into the lesion and then come back and utilize them in other ways. They also can be stored somewhat indefinitely. And so once you have obtained the product, let's say you get it off of bone marrow, you send it to a lab to culture, expand it so that you're taking stem cell counts that were in the hundreds of thousands when you drew it from the sternum, let's say, you've obtained bone marrow from the sternum, the laboratory will send it through a number of passages where they multiply and they will send you back into the tens to hundreds of millions of stem cells. So it's a far more concentrated product. So that finances do drive a little bit my decision. But again, for me, I'm relying a lot on IRAP for joints, a lot of PRP in soft tissues, whether that's through a straight PRP product or an autologous protein solution product that also contains PRP. They're probably both drawing on similar science and similar proteins and growth factors to accomplish their goal. 
So that answers which one would I use? And then do I use them in combination? I find it funny that as veterinarians, I think we're prone to just doing all the things, right? Like, let's throw it all at them. (laughs) Let's use it all. And I try to resist that a little bit. So I am actually not someone who combines a lot of these. A lot of people will. They, we just, again, we don't have those head-to-head studies to, to really tell us which combinations may be superior. For me, I would say rather than using them in combination, I'm more likely to use them in sequence. And I'll give an example. I had a horse that had a really, really bad stifle, sent it to arthroscopy. We drew stem cells at the time of surgery. And because we're culture expanding them, that process takes three or four weeks. We also know that stem cells don't love being in an inflammatory environment. So following surgery, we treated that horse with a series of three intraarticular injections of IRAP to help decrease the inflammation in the immediate post-surgical time period. We were also allowing our stem cells to be culture expanded so that a month later, when they were ready, our joint was also in a better position to accept those stem cells. So I did a series of IRAP and then followed it with an intraarticular injection with mesenchymal stem cells. Gotcha. And I love that you bring up that because we don't have those head-to-head studies, it comes down to, you know, the studies that we do have and then experience and sometimes anecdotal use, because I feel like, you know, another thing, in addition to wanting to throw everything at them, which I agree is kind of the inclination sometimes, I know for myself, something I've fought when I'm practicing is like, I want there to be a black and white answer. I want it to be like, if this, then that, and know exactly what to do. And that's just not the case when it comes to medicine. And I feel like I've over the years become more and more comfortable with that. This is what seems to work for me, or, you know, I've heard about this experience from someone else and kind of, you know, it makes sense to me. And I think it would, it would be good in this situation. And the more I talk to people like you and other areas of medicine who have really used a lot of these products at a high level, I would say for the most part, there's a lot of, look, you got to use your best judgment. You have to use your clinical experience and you have to look at your patient. And it gives people like me who want that, like, no, I want the, if this, then that answer permission to, to trust ourselves a little bit more when we're practicing and say, okay, you know, my gut says this is the way that we're going. And I've had these experiences and I have this knowledge. So I'm going to make this decision for my patient. I don't know if any of that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. And just a a few comments on that. I think one of the things is that we can argue all day about, you know, PRP versus IRAP versus alpha-2 microglobulin versus autologous protein solution. And we have to realize that those are all products that are, we're basically deriving from blood, right? So they're, there's some combination of the same thing. So I think that's one common is that a lot of the times we want that black and white answer, but we have to acknowledge the fact that we're, we're getting anti-inflammatory cytokines. We're getting growth factors. The way that the products are processed is different. And of course they're commercialized. So you're going to get arguments about which one is better, but we're probably all relying on some level on some very similar underlying factors. So that's one comment. And I think the other one to align with exactly what you said, because I completely agree is we have to be very careful about 
judging other people for their decisions because we all do have to rely on what has worked for us. So I can very confidently say, this is what has worked for me. And that doesn't automatically mean that doing something different is wrong or will have a worse outcome. But it's really easy to, I think, judge you know, when we're not there or judge what you would do versus what someone else would do. And we've all had different experiences and every patient is different. There's a whole nother layer that we haven't even talked about of, of individual responses to medicine, right? There's a huge field in that in human medicine, which is trying to figure out, right, who responds to different things. And sometimes that's trial and error. I respond really well to Advil and other people get headaches and Advil doesn't work at all. And I think that's very similar to what we deal with in treating joint disease. You're, you're so right. There's something to be said for that, what works in my hands. And I'll keep this really brief, but I had this experience actually just yesterday where I had a patient who was in the hospital for sedation. And I looked back in the notes and multiple times this patient had been given this certain dose of sedation and it was higher than what I wanted to use. And, and there were notes, you know, patient has done great with this, patient has done great with this. And I said, you know, it's just a little higher than what I want to use. So I'm going to go a little lower. I actually went a lot lower and all but respiratory arrest is what I got. Like, you know, he was fine. <laughs> we reversed it and, and everything was good. But I was like, and that has been my experience. I'm like, for some reason, when I use this particular drug, like I just get way more profound and unpredictable effects. And my the technicians I was working with were laughing because they've heard me complain about this drug multiple times and they watched it happen. And I was like, do you see what I mean? It just doesn't <laughs> work in my hands. Yeah, I have had very similar experiences. So I think we, you know, you said it earlier, it's a little bit of an art and a little bit of a science. And, and we definitely this regenerative medicine field, I think walks that line for sure. Sure, sure. Which which is part of what makes it so fun. Absolutely. So knowing that this is kind of an art and kind of a science, how do you communicate that with a client? And, you know, what kind of points do you make sure and discuss with them? That's always like client communication, right? Should be the topic of, of every discussion right. that we have. <laughs> and I do think it's important to set expectations. And that goes back to that initial definition of regenerative medicine. For me, I worry that when people hear the term regenerative, they're going to get this expectation that we're going to be able to restore that joint to its original form and the original biomechanical properties. So I, I do try to talk about the fact that in its purest sense, we can't regenerate normal articular cartilage. Our goal is, is of course, to return the joint and the function of the joint as close to normal as possible. But I do try to reiterate that in the case of osteoarthritis, we're really trying to limit progression of the disease. And in the case of soft tissue injuries, we are using these products to try to minimize the chance of re-injury. So that's one point that I would, would add on client communication. Another one is that we have to acknowledge that there's side effects, unfortunately, to anything that we do. Even if we have the best intentions, there certainly is a chance even though it's a protein that usually comes from the horse's own body, that doesn't always mean that they're going to like it being put into a soft tissue or into a joint. So there is a chance that a horse can flare to any of these products. I wouldn't say that, you know, they flare more to one versus another, but it certainly can happen. I don't scare them in that I usually tell them that it's self-limiting and ultimately doesn't end up having a lot of detrimental effects down the road. So even if they flare, we don't tend to see a worse outcome in those cases. You just have to prepare them so that if the horse comes up non-weight-bearing lame on a Friday night, which is when they're going to do it, um, that course. they've at least been, you know, sort of warned that that is 
that is possible. I think one other thing that I try to discuss with them is that because this area is is so exciting, it's almost like biohacks, right? We're helping the body do something that it already has the capability to do. We're just helping it along. And so it's a really exciting area and it's considered good, but that doesn't necessarily make other things bad. So I, I do feel like with the increase in these use of regenerative products or orthobiologics, that there's become a little bit of a sense that corticosteroids are bad. Now there are certain times when absolutely corticosteroids are contraindicated, but I don't see it as black and white as saying orthobiologics or regenerative medicine is always, you know, good and steroids are always bad. It's not a good guy versus a bad guy. It's just figuring out what your goals are and how these products can best help you reach those goals. So those, I would say, encompass the majority of things that I try to touch on when I'm talking to my clients about these options. Sure. And and I certainly hear you about the the non-weight-bearing lameness on a Friday night. Animals always seem to have the best timing when it they comes do. to They do. It's amazing. It's usually a holiday. It's either yes. a Friday night or a holiday. It is uncanny, <laughs> their ability to do yeah, like a Friday sure. night or a Sunday yeah. afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So with that being the case, you know, knowing that there's the potential for these flares, is there any contraindication for giving these cases where you would say, nope, not this, not this patient? I don't know that it's fair to pull budget into contraindication, but they do tend, these treatments tend to be expensive. So that is certainly a reality that may influence when we use one or not. I gave an example earlier of using these intralesionally, right? As a, you can directly inject a a lesion in a soft tissue, but if there's already scaffolding there, then you do have the risk of disrupting that scaffolding and actually setting that healing process back. So to me, I would put that under the category of contraindication. And it's not so much a contraindication of any given product. It's more with when we choose to use this product. And then like we've already talked about with our client, there is that chance of flare. So again, maybe not a contraindication, but certainly something to be aware of that that occurs. Our best estimate is about five to 6% of the time. That's a a decent amount of the time when you would inject a horse with an orthobiologic and, and wait. And then I think we can't ignore the fact that we don't have a ton of evidence-based medicine surrounding a lot of these treatments. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. We have a lot of case studies or case series, but we've talked a lot about the fact that we don't have head-to-head studies. And so I can't always adamantly argue to a client that they need to spend $3,000 on stem cells if I don't have a double-blinded scientific study that shows that it's going to have a better outcome. Literature certainly supports the use of these products, but we have a long way to go to really saying that we have strong scientific evidence behind these uses. Sure. And I would agree with you. Maybe maybe finances wouldn't be considered a contraindication, but they are an important consideration you know, for any treatment plan. I think it's very fair to throw those in there and say, yeah, you know, we can do this, this financial, this time investment. And, you know, and we don't know exactly how it's going to play out in this particular patient. So certainly an important thing to bring up with so many different treatment options. Yeah. And they're, and they're biologic beings, right? So they're, they're not always predictable. We don't, 
not every patient is going to respond the same way. So even if something has an 80% success rate, well, if you're in the 20%, that doesn't help you with your competition horse, right? If they're in the 20% that was in the failure category, even though 80% is a, is a really great outcome for pretty much any of the treatments that we have for orthopedic conditions. And that's usually what I tell people, the same conversation we have with general anesthesia, right? Like it, one in 10,000 horses may have a catastrophic episode with general anesthesia, but if you're that one in 10,000, the statistics don't really matter. I had a professor in vet school and he would say, you know, you can throw statistics at me all day, but the odds for this patient are zero or a hundred. Absolutely. Yep. That's so true. Oh, it's, a, it's like a thought that, you know, I, I carry around with me, but I have to kind of put it to the side a little bit because it can be a little scary. Yes, I agree. Well, I so appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking to us about all of these different treatment modalities. I know we've only scratched the surface and there's there's so much more to delve into which, with each and every one of these treatment modalities. So I hope that we can talk about this more in the future. Any final thoughts you want to share with us before we wrap up? Yeah, I think it is just a really exciting area. There's lots of promise for a lot of these products. I would just say stay tuned because there's certainly certainly more to come. The other sort of final parting thought is something that I think we should be very proud of is that it's actually one of the areas that I think that we have outpaced human medicine. And we can't say that very often in veterinary medicine, but I do feel like we are really at the forefront of this research and that's and its use. And I think that's really, really exciting. That is really exciting. Gosh, now I just want to sit here and talk for another hour about all of this. <laughs> <laughs> but I know we have to wrap up here. So thank you again for coming on and talking to me about all of this. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Dr. Contino, I will tell you, I don't think you'll find me doing joint injections on horses anytime soon, but I still loved talking about all of these regenerative medicine concepts and all of these up and coming therapies that I think are going to be really exciting in veterinary medicine. Thank you to DECRA for making this episode possible. And of course, to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. Mm -hmm.